Japan reaches an asteroid. This week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. Little Hayabusa has reached an asteroid named after the father of the Japanese space program. Right now, the probe is hovering only about 20 kilometers or 12 miles above Itokawa, carefully examining the kidney bean-shaped rock as it prepares to collect samples for return to Earth. Our first guest is the manager of the Hayabusa mission. Junichiro Kawaguchi will join us from his homeland. Then we'll get the personal insights of planetary scientist and former director of the Jet Propulsion Lab, Bruce Murray. Bruce has been close to the Japanese space effort for many years. That other Bruce, our own Dr. Betts, is back with an artsy space trivia contest for you, along with his report on the night sky, and we'll be getting to Emily Lakdawalla in just a minute or two. Speaking of Emily, we'll give her the top spot in this week's review of space headlines. Check out her update on what we're learning about Saturn's beautiful and fascinating rings. They are turning out to be far more complex than anyone imagined. Emily's full report from the annual Division of Planetary Sciences meeting in England is at planetary.org. As we finish preparing this week's show, NASA has scheduled a press conference to describe what they only describe as interesting changes observed by the Mars Global Surveyor above the Red Planet. We're as curious as you are, and we hope to have details next week. The Senate approved the space agency's budget as part of a much bigger spending package. This version included a $200 million increase for NASA. And the Planetary Society has announced the recipients of its most prestigious awards. Beloved science fiction author Ray Bradbury is getting the Thomas O. Paine Award for the Advancement of Human Exploration of Mars, while filmmaker James Cameron will receive the inaugural Cosmos Award for Outstanding Public Presentation of Science. The pair will be the guests of honor at the Society's banquet celebrating its 25th anniversary in November. That's no oxymoron, that's a volcano made of ice. Here's Emily to tell us more. I'll be right back with Junichiro Kawaguchi. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, What is cryovolcanism? From Latin word roots, you can tell that cryovolcanism means volcanic activity involving ice. This seems contradictory. But on worlds as cold as Titan and Enceladus, ordinary water ice is as solid and unlikely to melt as rock is on Earth. But just as geologic activity can melt rock in some places below Earth's surface, so too does geology act to create pockets of cryomagma on the icy moons. When the cryomagma erupts, it's called cryolava. The cryolava would spill out of a vent and form characteristic volcanic landforms, domes, and flows and vents. Features like these have already been observed on Titan. What could be causing Titan's cryovolcanic activity? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out. The little probe was christened Hayabusa shortly after its 2003 launch. The Japanese word means peregrine falcon. It's an apt name for a bird that will figuratively swoop down on asteroid Itokawa, fire projectiles that will send bits of space rock flying into waiting receptacles, and then return these first ever samples to Earth. The first objective was reached last week 
as the ion-engine-powered spacecraft pulled within 20 kilometers of the asteroid. Project manager Junichiro Kawaguchi and his relatively small team are now surveying Itokawa, looking for safe spots for what will be more of a docking maneuver than a landing. We talked to him just a few days ago. Dr. Kawaguchi, first of all, thank you very much for uh, joining us on Planetary Radio. You must be uh, very proud. You certainly have a right to be. Your uh, spacecraft, Hayabusa, for which you are the project manager, has reached its destination. Right. Okay. But the uh, spacecraft, and uh, you know, they successfully, you know, uh, arrived at an asteroid, the uh, biggest and the step, you know, the, for that the project, and uh, which we have uh, aimed at. And uh, now that the, the spacecraft and the project starts, and uh, the uh, observations, uh, proximity observations, and uh, we are uh, very excited to have that. You are only 20 kilometers from right. Itokawa. Yes, that's correct. We intended, you know, we intended to make the spacecraft hover, you know, at the distance of 20 kilometers first. You know, that's another what we call gate position, and followed uh, by that, uh, you know, the uh, lower, you know, the altitude box. You know, that's another home position box located at the seven kilometers toward an Earth direction, and that will happen at the next month. The mission is is far from over. You have many events uh, still to come, but for now, you begin a process of observing the asteroid, and part of this is to decide where you will draw your samples from. Yeah, you know, we are really you know interested in where to you know collect the samples at, uh, from wh- which point. However, that you know still that the distance is twenty kilometers and uh, the re- the resolution is not high. So the only thing you know, we can have currently is an, you know, the uh, fine looking flat on the plane you know, the, on the surface. But it looks like you know, the, every point is uh, the, you know, has on the boulders and the, the slope and the, is relatively uh, steep. And uh, so we may have some difficulty finding that the good place and at the distance of over 20 kilometers. So you have to find a fairly flat area, a flat plane, as you said, to uh, safely uh, collect these samples. Right. Biggest on the difficulty in making the spacecraft descend to the asteroid is in uh, how accurately we can guide the uh, spacecraft to that uh, intended point. Slow speed and the maneuver, that means that they, uh, we, we cannot tell so exactly the which direction that the spacecraft starts to descend. So that the dispersion may be another, uh, a little bit large. You know. The asteroid is uh, just under you know, 450 you know, meters in radius. And the button of dispersion may be at the uh, several tens of meters. We want to have a uh, wide area in which it should be in a flat, you know, but uh, that, that area you know, may not be found. So you will obviously be able to pick the site, but I, I know that Hayabusa is a very smart, a very intelligent spacecraft that has done uh, some autonomous navigation. Will it be on its own to a degree as it approaches the asteroid uh, later this year? Touching down occurs in November, you know, almost two months uh, ahead. And uh, by that time, uh, the, almost uh, for one and a half months, uh, we will, you know, concentrate our activity to the mapping activity, you know, the, based on which uh, we can decide where to land and where to collect uh, samples. The spacecraft is equipped with a kind of uh, sophisticated uh, intelligent uh, functions to guide on itself to target the marker, yes. which is um, illuminated by the flash lamp aboard. So the, every uh, one second, the uh, spacecraft fl- makes a uh, flash lamp on, 
and uh, the spacecraft and identifies where that the target marker is, and the spacecraft uh, approaches to that that target marker. You know, that's another uh, uh, you know brief description about and how how we can make the spacecraft land. I see. And you'll actually, uh, I suppose, in, in it's in November, as you said, that right. there will be, you hope, two touchdowns to collect these samples. Right, two times. This craft has uh, three target markers as well as uh, three and uh, projectile. Uh, well, that's on uh, three guns. However, that uh, we we think currently and uh, this uh, the sampling you know should be in uh, two times, preceded by that the uh, one rehearsal descent you know that uh, without a uh, touching down. The purpose of rehearsal descent is to make sure that the that an uh, onboard that the navigation system functions and also that we can ha- find out the uh, laser rangefinder in our board should function. This reminds me a bit of uh, some of the Apollo missions, particularly Apollo 10, just right. before the moon landing of Apollo 11. Uh, the, the astronauts who came very close to the moon but uh, didn't get to land. You, your approach to uh, Itokawa, of course, is, is I suppose should be easier in some ways in that uh, Itokawa doesn't have uh, much of uh, influence uh, with gravity on your spacecraft, does it? Yeah, that's well correct. You know, you know touching down and the landing on the bigger and the huge and the planet you know, requires a tremendous amount of the, the uh, fear, you know, that requires you know, the biggest thrust and the propulsion. Uh-huh. That from that point of view, that those on the spacecraft must be, you know, must carry that they are fewer bigger than the propulsion system. Instead, uh, the uh, you know landing on this and uh, is a kind of uh, the docking with uh, the space station, you know, the, by the, the space and the shuttle. More like but, more like the space station, yes. Right. However, that the uh, that even though that the that, uh, the gravity is very small, ultra small, almost uh, ten to the minus four or ten to the minus five g, hmm. but uh, very enough, you know. So that's uh, the big uh, the you know gravity, enough gravity, so that the, you know we have to you know take uh, seriously into that uh, gravity into account. Hmm, I see. So once these uh, samples are picked up, right. uh, in December, Hayabusa right. will leave Itokawa to yeah. return with them to Earth and arrives back here in 2007. Yes, the June of 2007, the, we, the, our plan is to make uh, that the uh, re-entry capsule land in the desert of uh, Australia the, uh, in the south, south Hemisphere. Originally, and uh, you know, wh- when that uh, our target was on a different uh, asteroid, the uh, our recovery area was planned in the Utah desert, you know, area the, where that the Genesis and the Stardust uh, are going to use. But uh, the currently, and you know, the uh, Itokawa from Itokawa, that the return trajectory, you know, may not, you know, the uh, plunge into the, the North Hemisphere, the South Hemisphere is only a choice. Yes, I see. And so that's expected in uh, June of 2007, and, and there is a small re-entry capsule that uh, will descend with a parachute? Yes, that's right. The, the spacecraft to separate uh, that small uh, capsule, the first diameter is about uh, 400 millimeters. That weighs about uh, 20 kilograms, and uh, that is released uh, almost in the middle of uh, the moon's distance, and uh, that's uh, almost 10 hours before the re-entry. And uh, the, that only the capsule plunges into the atmosphere and lands in the desert. And if all goes well, you will have returned about how much material from uh, asteroid Itokawa? We think another expected amount of the sample is uh, several hundred milligram mm-hmm. fragments. Uh, you may think uh, that is very small, but uh, that's uh, still uh, not a particle, not a powder that should, 
should be another kind of the, the bulk, you know, the fragments, and uh, that's not very enough for that, the, you know, the many researchers to analyze. Dr. Kawaguchi, we certainly once again congratulate you and the entire team behind uh, Hayabusa on the, this first very impressive success, and we wish you the best of luck uh, for the. Uh, ambitious uh, effort that remains, this uh, approach to uh, asteroid Itakawa, the collection of the samples, and then uh, we will hope for a safe return to Earth, along with uh, you and many others. Thank you very much. You know, they, uh, and uh, we think on, you know, the uh, TPS, you know, they uh, still continue to support us. Well, we are uh, certainly happy to do that. The Planetary Society is uh, uh, certainly uh, impressed and, and very pleased to uh, provide this coverage of your mission. We will refer people to uh, the article on our website at uh, planetary.org, which uh, should be available by the time people get to hear this interview. We're going to take a quick break and then come back with Dr. Bruce Murray, your colleague, the former director of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who mm-hmm. is uh, someone else who is very excited about uh, Hayabusa, which has now reached asteroid Itokawa. Once again, uh, Dr. Junichiro Kawaguchi, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. We'll be right back. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. We didn't just build it. We attempted to put that first solar sail in orbit, and we're going to try again. You can read about all our exciting projects and get the latest space exploration news in-depth at the Society's exciting and informative website, planetary.org. You can also preview our full-color magazine, The Planetary Report. It's just one of our many member benefits. Want to learn more? Call us at 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Planetary scientist and geologist Bruce Murray has seen many milestones reached in our exploration of the solar system. But few of those milestones were reached by his colleagues and friends in Japan. That has changed in the last weeks as the former director of the Jet Propulsion Lab and co-founder of the Planetary Society has witnessed and applauded the success of the Hayabusa mission. Bruce Murray, I'm not surprised to know that you've taken a professional interest in Hayabusa and the work of the Institute of Space and Astronautical Science, now part of JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency. What I did not know is that you have a a personal relationship, a personal interest uh, in their efforts. That's true. It started about 10 years ago. Uh, my wife and I, Suzanne, started making repeated visits there almost every summer. And they, at that time, were just going into planetary science. And they looked upon me as an asset in that regard. And then we developed strong personal relationships with a variety of uh, people there and vice versa. So it's, it's, it's a warm and, and trusted relationship uh, with all concerned. Well, and as a planetary scientist of some renown, uh, you must be quite excited about this mission to return a sample from an asteroid. Yes, because especially I've seen it develop, and I've seen their previous ones, which some they had some failures, and I know how thin they are. The, by comparison, JPL's effective workforce is not including the contractor ones, but the JPL employees, about 4,000 people. Comparably there, it's 400 wow. at JAXA. Uh, in addition, this same organization 
develops rockets, uh, which JPL used to do but does not do. They use other people's rockets. Uh, so they have done a lot, and that's been their tradition. They're a lot like JPL was in the early days, uh, the late 50s and 60s, where the JPL also developed rockets and launched the first uh, deep space probes and so forth. So there's a lot of similarity in that level, at least. And so I find that fascinating, and I think it's also interesting to see how two different cultures have responded to uh, the same natural challenges that are involved. So obviously an organization that small with a mission that is this successful, or at least this successful on an incremental basis, uh, it's a pretty impressive uh, accomplishment. Exactly, and that is my point. The earlier ones did fail. Uh, They've had a number of failures. (laughs) <laughs> since they don't manage to popularize either their failures or their successes very well, mm. you probably don't know much about it. But uh, I know, I know how hard they worked and how disappointing those failures were. But it, it's the necessary steps, and they have elected to kind of go it alone or go it their own way. Uh, they do use some U.S. equipment, but uh, not really. In other words, they've elected to develop their own launch vehicle capability and their own deep space capability. So they're competing with the U.S., they're competing with Europe and uh, in the United States. So if you look at the size of the relative space programs, their space program in terms of expenditures is quite small compared to the U.S. or Europe, even though the gross national products are comparable. Now, as you say, the, the, the program that is in competition with the United States and the European Space Agency programs, I'm sure that they also complement each other and that this mission is one that is is welcomed by planetary scientists like yourself and others here in the U.S. and and around the world. Right, and the same thing's true for European missions that are in competition, or Soviet or Russian missions. Mm. Um, Of course they are. And the other thing is that the Japanese, of course, have been careful to choose missions that they had a good chance of making a unique contribution in. And not, uh, for example, they haven't done any Mars missions yet. Uh, so they've chosen things that they could do within their capability that were scientifically interesting and important, but were not duplicative of what the United States or other countries have done. As we uh, have just a minute or two left, I, I just want to get your thoughts about, uh, or your feelings in a sense, about uh, this possibility of returning pristine asteroid material directly from space. Right. It, 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 it's the, the best and the worst of times in the sense that it is the most important scientific observation that one can make. It's bringing back samples. There's just no question. The power of terrestrial laboratories are so great, and the ability to compare with meteorites and terrestrial rocks uh, and also lunar rocks is so great that the uh, significance, you can hardly overestimate it. On the other hand, to complement that, it is the most difficult mission to do, to actually acquire, go all the way out, get down to the surface, acquire the sample, leave the surface, fly all the way back, and then re-enter through the Earth's atmosphere successfully. That is really tough. And so they are trying the most difficult planetary mission in the category that you can do. We'll see how it works. The odds are, in my view, that it probably won't. I mean, not all those steps. But wisely, they are doing some important science along the way, which means that if there is a failure later on, they will have already made some important accomplishments, which is what's happening right now. Well, we finished with Dr. Kawaguchi by wishing them luck, and uh, uh, we'll give you the chance to do the same before we close out this segment of Planetary Radio. 
Yes, I have already uh, talked to him and wished them luck based upon my somewhat detailed knowledge of them and what they're doing, as well as my knowledge of the challenge. And that uh, if this succeeds, it's be an extraordinary achievement on any scale and for a country with as small and relatively early planetary program as there, it will be quite extraordinary. Bruce, thanks so much for taking a couple of minutes uh, for us on the radio. Good. Glad to help. Bye-bye. Bruce Murray is Professor Emeritus, Planetary Science at Caltech, and of course, the longtime past director of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory near Pasadena, California. And the co-founder of the Planetary Society. And the co-founder of the Planetary Society. (laughs) Which is equally important to the other two. Lest we forget. (laughs) Glad you feel that way, Bruce. Thanks again. We're going to be right back after this return visit from Emily with Bruce Betts and this week's edition of What's Up. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. What could be generating the heat necessary to cause cryovolcanism on Titan and Enceladus? These bodies are very small, so small that they've likely lost any significant amount of heat left over from their formation. The usual heat source cited for moons of giant planets is tidal heating, frictional heat caused by the motions of tidal bulges raised by the interaction between the moon, its planet, and its neighboring moons. But for Enceladus especially, the math doesn't work tidal heating can't produce enough energy to make the moon active today. One thing that could help is if the ice on these moons were not pure water ice, but were instead contaminated by ammonia, a chemical that would likely have been present when the moons were forming. In the presence of ammonia, ordinary water ice displays unusual behavior. It melts at much lower temperatures. If there were a lot of ammonia present, then any melting water ice would necessarily include around 10 to 30 percent ammonia and would become more viscous, goopy rather than runny. A goopy cryolava could create volcanic landforms on Titan that look a lot like the ones we've seen on Earth and Venus. Ammonia water volcanism is a very attractive explanation for volcanism on Enceladus and Titan. The problem is no ammonia has yet been detected at either place. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is here. He's the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. And he's going to tell us what's going on in the night sky, and I bet he'll have a new trivia contest, too. Won't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll think about that. In the meantime, hey, really didn't. <laughs> hey, go out and look up in the sky and uh, see planets. We've got Venus still in the evening. That bright-looking star-like object is Venus. You may still be able to catch Jupiter below Venus, very low down, but it's going to be tough. We've got Mars, however, rising before 10 p.m. in the east, looking beautiful and bright and orange and just getting brighter over the next couple of months. And if you're up before dawn, which I don't suggest, then Saturn is low in the east uh, before uh, before dawn. And uh, always a great telescope object, but it'll get better and easier to see over the coming months, so don't worry. On to this week in space history. Two of the great things in space history ever to happen, of course, this week. Uh, in 1962, we had the premiere of the Jetsons. Oh, Yeah. We got a real cartoon thing going on. No, not cartoon. TV science fiction thing. Yeah, it's really, it's for you, Matt. Last week lost in space, now the Jetsons. Redsons. (laughs) Astro. Astro. (laughs) Right, Rory, Rorge. (laughs) 
<laughs> Didn't we figure out that Astro is like the grandchild to the nth of uh, Scooby-Doo? Uh, that's right. <laughs> Sorry. Right, Rovio Astro. Moving right along to uh, the the arrival, no humor here, the arrival of Werner von Braun to the United States 60 years ago in 1945 after his uh, his stint launching missiles at the UK. He decided to uh, come on – well, <laughs> he was persuaded to come on over and eventually help uh, the United States space program get to the moon. We could get some humor out of that, but we won't go there. But we choose not to. Mm-hmm. But don't worry, there's more humor to come. On to Random Space Fact! Especially nice. Oh, thank you. Asteroids! Asteroids! <laughs> the largest asteroid in the Asteroid Belt series has about 25% of the mass of the entire Asteroid Belt. Wow! I didn't know that. And there's cool new data from Hubble about mm-hmm. Ceres and its roundness and its water iciness. So if you want to find out about that, go to planetary.org, the source of all wonderful information. Well, okay, not all, but but there's good stuff there. Let's move on to the uh, trivia contest. Now, we asked you, as of September 7th, 2005, how many Progress supply ships, how many of them had visited the International Space Station. How'd we do, Matt? Almost everybody got it right. Almost everybody understood that you were talking about the ships that had arrived to that date, uh, up until the 7th. Righto. With all those uh, goodies for uh, the uh, astronaut and the cosmonaut. Our winner, Derek Buckley. Derek from Spokane, Washington, said, must be referring to the upcoming 19th, he's going to do some quick math, he says, and say 18 have visited the International Space Station so far. Correct. That is quite correct, and he will get a fabulous Planetary Radio t-shirt. And indeed, a 19th launched and is now stuck to the side of the space station. I, I mean, intentionally, not not accidentally. <laughs> All right, well, let's go on to the next trivia contest, and I, and I thought it was time to uh, delve into the world of, of fine art, or, or at least art. We need to class the place up. We do, and so... You think I kid, but I'm going to class the place up. <laughs> Hopefully now we'll, I'm, now we'll, I'm frightened. We'll, we'll need an air freshener. What is the name of the famous tapestry that depicts, among other things, the view of Halley's Comet in 1066 A.D.? Excellent question. I from remember this. Yes. The U- from the U.K. <clears throat> from the, the U.K. For what is now the U.K. I might know the answer to this. Don't say it! I'm not eligible. Tell the people who are how they can enter. Go to planetary.org slash radio. Follow the links for trivia contests. Find out how to enter and send us your answer to try to be randomly selected from the correct answers to win a Planetary Radio t-shirt. You're going to want to get that entry to us by Monday, September 26th at 2 p.m. Pacific Time. Monday the 26th at 2 p.m. Pacific Time. And I can't remember if it was in one of my art history books or in my astronomy book, but mm. uh, but it's out there, folks. And, you know, before people correct me, uh, it's referred to its name, its title, even uses the word tapestry, but apparently it is actually an embroidery. Oh, So all of those clever. into such things. Don't worry. You took art history, right. too? Uh, yeah, but not for that. No. Because no. <laughs> there was a lot of girls in there. I know. <laughs> He's got no comeback. <laughs> wow, I'm actually speechless. <laughs> Two and a half years of the show. I'm not sure that's ever happened. I don't think it has. Well, is, uh, uh, are we done? We are done. I'm oh. sorry. I know that's my job. Bruce, we're done. Oh, thank you. Well, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about Ruby Snacks. <laughs> 
Ryrod Ruby Snacks. He's Bruce Betts. He's the director of projects for the Planetary Society. He joins us each week here on What's Up. Good boy. Rank you, Red. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, where we welcome our newest listeners catching us for the first time on KWRP Freeform Radio for beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. We hope you enjoy our little space opera. Got any questions about the universe? Send them to planetaryradio at planetary.org, and we'll pass them right along to Emily for her Q&A segment. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.